Alright, good morning. Great to have you with us, whether you're here live at uh, Botany or watching in Hastings, kia ora to you guys, or watching or listening to this on the internet, it's great to have you with us wherever you are. Now if you're watching this either in Hastings or online at some point, what I'm about to say won't make any sense for you, so you have to take what I'm saying today live to these guys and alter the numbers slightly. Alright, because here's the news, folks, are you ready? 37 days till Christmas. Yes! It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Isn't that exciting? Who's excited? I'm trying to convince my wife to put the Christmas tree up already, even though it's not December. She's holding out at the moment, but I think me and my boys, who've all got my Christmas gene, are slowly wearing her down. Um, who's already listening to Christmas carols like I am? Alright, there's a handful of us. That is awesome. The rest of you are looking at me like, oh my stars, you've got to be kidding. But people get excited, alright? It is 35, sorry, 37. Almost cut us short by two days. 37 days till Christmas. And I wanted to talk about Christmas a little bit today. What we've been doing lately in our wider family uh, for Christmas, because both on the foreman side, Rochelle's family, and the car side, um, we've now got like growing up or growing up nephews and nieces and cousins and stuff, and if we were buying them all presents, it just becomes horribly expensive. You know, in the good old days when they were three and four years old, you go to the $2 shop and buy some junk for them, and it was all good. Now it's too expensive, and so we came to an arrangement, actually in both wider families a few years ago, that we would do the old $5 present. Any of you guys do that as well? So everyone buys one $5 present, they all go under the tree, and then we take turns to pick one present. Is that, some of you guys do that? We do that. So it's kind of fun. So you buy a $5 present, one person buys one each, they all go under the tree, and then everyone picks a number out of the hat. And if you get number one, bad luck, because that's the worst number to get. You want the last number, whatever that is. Because the person with, with number one has to pick a present from the tree and unwrap it, and then person number two either can go and pick a present from under the tree, or they can steal number one's present. And so the, the longer you wait until it's your turn, the more presents have been unwrapped that you can survey and decide whether or not you want to steal them. That's a great, it's a great way to do Christmas. It's encouraging stealing at Christmas time. It's wonderful. The rule in our family is once a gift has been stolen three times, it can't be stolen again. So if you are the third thief, you're being rewarded for timing your thievery well because if you are the one who steals it for the third time, that is your gift permanently. No one else can steal it. And so most of us, uh, for this kind of Christmas uh, $5 present thing that we do as wider families, not, we don't do this to our boys, we still do nice Christmas presents for them, but this is wider families, most of us buy something nice for under $5, a box of chocolates or some nice stationery or some, a couple of bags of lollies. So they're getting stolen left, right and centre. So that's what all of us generally buy. And then there's Harrison. So Harrison is our oldest son, who's almost 20, and I have permission to say this. Harrison's goal, ever since we started doing Christmas this way, has been to find the worst possible present he can so that the poor family member who unwraps his $5 gift is desperately trying to get their gift stolen by everyone else, and more often than not does it. Uh, for example, a couple of years ago, it was quite, quite memorable, well, Roland actually unwrapped 
a set of dish gloves. They actually weren't quite as ugly as these. I found these yesterday in the $2 shop, and these are even uglier than the yellow ones Roland got. But it was quite priceless seeing Roland's downcast face when he unwrapped his Christmas gift. In fact, it was so bad, I actually stole his rubber gloves just so that he could actually have the opportunity to have another gift for Christmas and actually uh, enjoy it. But Harrison and I were, were laughing about this this week as I was telling him what I wanted to share and getting his permission, and we started uh, reminiscing about some of the other things. Um, I think he's done this before. Um, a pack of 51 plastic forks. <laughs> I don't... Why 51? That, that seems bizarre. But anyway, um, if you want to follow in Harrison's footsteps, that's always a great gift. Um, did I see Kathy Downey Parish come in today? Yeah, Kathy. I saw this in the $2 shop, and I thought of you. It's a solar-powered dancing queen. It's Queen Elizabeth II, and, and it's solar-powered, so once it's set in the sun for, for about three hours, it ends up going like this. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty cool, and it's under $5, all right? Or I found this too. I haven't seen this before, but in the $2 shop yesterday, this is just awesome. It's poo sunglasses. And they're cool. I need to... I know, I know this is church and everything, but, you know, seriously. <laughs> hey, suddenly Christmas, it's exciting. It's only 37 days away, isn't it? Some of you. Awesome. Now, amidst all that, of course, you see a bag like that. And you think, well, thank goodness someone's got a bit of wisdom. Hey, because everyone at Christmas needs a beautiful Christmas tie, just like that with Santa on it. So that's how Harrison approaches this way we do Christmas. Now, the reason I'm talking about that is, is not just to have some fun and, and, and get excited about Christmas coming, uh, but to make a serious point. Because back when I was a teenager, I remember preachers talking about gifts that kind of remind me of these kinds of gifts. They're the kind of gifts you get that you don't actually want. They're the kind of gifts that you'd actually rather give back. Um, some of you, uh, maybe who are married, might have got one or two of those gifts for your wedding. Um, certainly, if you've been old enough, you know, if you're a reasonable age, you've certainly got some of these kind of gifts for birthdays or Christmas. The kind of gifts that you smile nicely and say thank you, but you really can't wait to, to get rid of or trade in or do something with it. And I remember as a teenager, I heard about a gift uh, that, that was available and that could be given to me, and I remember praying that I would never get that gift. It's the one in this, this big bag. Hold on, let me just create a bit of room here. It's called the gift of singleness. I remember being in church when I first heard about this, and it's actually based from a, a Bible passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul wrote, I wish that all of you were as I am, which in the context of the whole chapter is a single man. He's saying, I wish all of you were single like I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And the preachers would explain that the, the one has this gift and another has that. In the context of 1 Corinthians 7, this gift is singleness and that gift is marriage. And so it was explained to us that there was this thing called the spiritual gift of singleness. So just like there are spiritual gifts 
um, that the New Testament talks about, different abilities that God gives us, whether it's teaching or, or healing or administration, whatever it is, there are these spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit just distributes in a variety of ways around us all. There's this other gift called the gift of singleness. And if you have the gift of singleness, that's this spirit-given ability to not only endure being single for your whole life, but to actually enjoy being single for your whole life. And I remember hearing that as a teenager and going home and praying, Lord, please. People tell me you've given me the gift of teaching and I'm happy to teach. And, and people say that I might have a gift in leadership and I'm really happy to lead and glorify you like that. But please, God, please do not give me the gift of singleness. And that memory was brought back to me earlier this year. I was sitting in the Drive community group, which is our community group of young adults. Um, we were at Katahi mid-year, um, and I was just sitting, we'd, we'd kind of done a discussion, and then I was just in the very beginning of planning the series we're in on called One Plus One. And so I was chatting to them, and I said, what are your questions when you, as young adults, think about relationships and love and romance and sex and marriage and singleness? What questions have you got? And they threw all these questions at me, which helped actually form the series that we're doing at the moment. And then one of the, the young women in, in our Drive community group said, I've heard there's this thing called the gift of singleness. And the question was, is that, is that really a thing? And, and how do we avoid getting it? <laughs> and, and, and what do you do if you're given a gift? Like, does it come with one of those little receipts, like an exchange card? where you can exchange it in with God for a different kind of gift. So today, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about... I'm going to turn that off so I don't waste the batteries. I want to talk about the gift of singleness. I want to talk about being single, um, and particularly put it in the context of, that I have in the way I've titled this particular message, Content as One. So I am in particular talking to those of you who are single today. Now, that may be that you're a young adult or something of that kind of age, and you have never married and you may be happy with being single, you may be pretty keen to marry, or whatever. It may be that some of you here today are single and dating someone, or even engaged, um, but you're still single in terms of that category. Um, some of you here, I know, are single because you have lost your life partner. Your husband or wife has passed away. And so you, you were married, and now you're single again, or some of you are single again, but it's not because your husband or wife died, it's because they walked out and gave up on their marriage vows and abandoned you. And I'm conscious that all of you are here, and I want to speak to all of you today, whatever age bracket, whether you've never married or have been married and now are single again. If you're married today, I really want you to listen in, because I think it's incredibly important that married people get a far better grasp of what it's like to be single and um, next week, I'm going to turn the spotlight onto marrieds in particular and invite the singles to listen in. So today, though, I want to talk to the singles and invite the marrieds to listen in. All right, this, uh, this whole issue of, of singleness and marriage has been a, a big um, issue to think through and contemplate ever since ancient history. Um, the Greek philosopher uh, Socrates was once asked about whether marriage or singleness was better, and he said, marry or marry not, in either case, you'll regret it which is not an overly optimistic view of either status, really. Uh, Socrates was also the one, by the way, who said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. 
Apparently, historians tell us the next moment Mrs. Socrates clipped him around the ear, but we're not entirely sure whether that's true or not. But all joking aside, uh, I want to acknowledge often for many, not all, but many of you who are single, there's tremendous pain in that. Uh, Because many people would rather not be single. Many people feel like they've been given a gift and they desperately love to exchange the gift for something different. And for some of you, that's because you have never married, but you would love to marry. For others of you, you have been married and you've lost uh, your, your spouse either through divorce or death. And so there's tremendous pain in that. And I, I want to acknowledge that and I want to try the best I can to be sensitive to that today. Um, one single woman from Australia wrote these words that I really appreciated. Her name's Sarah Rose. She said, I know that single life can often feel like a waiting game. This is speaking as a single woman. Chances are, she says, you're tired of the struggle, tired of feeling like you're on the outside looking in, and tired of wondering what you're supposed to do with your life until you finally find your match. And and if that's you, then I hope today's message really speaks deeply uh, to your heart. So we're going to be based in, uh, in the key chapter that I'm really using for a good chunk of the series, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you want a Bible, I'd love you to open up there or, or an app on your phone, love you to scroll there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to look at a couple of passages, because what Paul does in this chapter is he's writing to this church in Corinth, and part of his letter is responding to some questions that they've written him. And in this chapter, he's responding to some of their questions about sex and love and marriage and singles. And in chapter 7, he jumps between talking to the singles in the church and the marrieds in the church, and he jumps between them. And so we're going to look at the two key pieces of, the, of this chapter where he's particularly addressing those who are single. All right, so he starts off in, uh, in chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, which is the verse that I just referred to before about the gift of singleness, but we'll go ahead and read it again. So if you've got it in front of you, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 to 9. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is single. Paul is single, whether he was single right through his life or whether he had been married and his spouse, his wife, had either left him when he came, became a follower of Jesus or had died, and now he's single. We don't know, but he's single as he writes. So he says, I wish all of you were single as I am, but each of you has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So um, these verses give us the key principle that he is going to unpack as he writes to single people. And the key principle is simply this. It's good to stay single, but it's also okay to marry. All right, that's basically Paul's teaching on this in the Bible. It's good to stay single, but it's, okay, it's also okay to marry. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to help us see that singleness and marriage are two good options in life which is good because all of us are either single or married. Even if we're single and dating or single and engaged, we're still single at that point. So we're either single or married. And what he's doing is going, both of those married statuses, state tie, what's the plural of status? Both of those states are good. It's good to be single and it's good to marry. In fact, Paul will even go slightly beyond that. 
Because he will actually end up saying, actually, if you want my personal opinion, guys, I'd suggest you stay single. When push comes to shove, Paul says, as a single apostle, I actually think singleness is slightly better. So he's saying, for those of you who are single, it's good to be single. In fact, just quietly, don't let the marrieds know, but it's actually slightly better to be single than it is to be married. Now that is very countercultural. It was very countercultural in Paul's day. In, in the ancient world, the highest ideal was that you would be married and have children. And so to be a single man or a single woman in the ancient world was really looked down on. And in many ways, it still is today. Our society today doesn't elevate marriage. In many ways, marriage gets poo-pooed today. But to be single and alone is not good. What our society does around us now is to idolise sex. And I'm going to speak particularly to the whole issue of sex in a couple of weeks. But we're in a society that says it doesn't matter if you're not married, if you're single, as long as you are enjoying some sexual intimacy. And so our society laughs at, for example, one movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And imagine that. We live in a world that mocks the idea that someone would be single and not enjoying sexual intimacy. And so that gets mocked big time. In fact, Sarah Rose, the lady from Aussie, writes, Our culture may not hold marriage very highly, but it practically worships sex. Not only is the concept of sexual purity daunting enough for the single Christian, it comes with the knowledge that the world mocks it and even considers it shameful. And, and so what Paul is doing here in this chapter, if you're single, is he is fighting the lie that singleness is second best. He is fighting the lie that being single is plan B. And he's fighting that in the ancient world that elevated marriage and childbearing above everything else. And he's now fighting it in, in our modern world because his words still speak today as the word of God that, that may say, well, being single is okay as long as you're, you're getting laid. And he says, no, singleness without sex can be a really good thing. In fact, Paul uses himself as an example as a man who was fulfilled and enjoyed life and was serving God, and says, I wish you were all like me, single. And many people would look at that concept of being single and, and, and having no sex and saying, good night, is that even possible to live like that? Not only is it possible, but you think about the greatest human being that has ever lived. Jesus died as a 33-year-old virgin. The most fulfilled human being that has ever been never enjoyed sexual intimacy. See, this is part of this romantic myth that I tried to deconstruct in the very first week of this series. That we are incomplete without another half. No, we are all fully complete in God. Jesus was a fully complete person without a girlfriend, without a wife, and without sexual intimacy. So singleness is a viable and good option in life. That's what Paul is wanting us to understand. And that's important in a society that idolizes sex. But if you're single today and you're a Christian today, you're, all, you're not only fighting a society that idolizes sex, you're actually fighting a church culture that idolizes marriage. 
Because what we give the, the, the impression, by and large in the church, is that marriage is best. That actually, married life is really what you should have. And if you're not married, if you're single, most married Christians feel bad for you. Because you're missing out on marriage. And Paul is just as much fighting the way we idolise marriage as he is fighting the way the world out there idolises sex. He is saying, no way. Because singleness is good. It is good to stay single. It is good not to marry. It is good to devote yourself to God in a single life. Not necessarily marry. Certainly not pursue sexual intimacy. And it's not plan B. And it's not second best. In fact, Paul is quietly whispering in this text, both of these things are really good things, but singleness is better. And that's what we desperately, I think, need to hear from this passage. What about this idea? This, 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 this gift of singleness. I think we've misunderstood it. I think the way that this was explained to me when I was a teenager was wrong. And I think if we can understand exactly what Paul means by this phrase, it will really help us grasp a much more biblical view, all of us, married and singles, of what singleness is all about. When Paul says in verse 7 that each of us has our own gift from God, one has this gift, another has that, when we read the word gift there, we're reading a Greek word called charismata. It's the word that charisma comes from, that charismatic comes from. And uh, charismata is the word that's used through the New Testament for what we call spiritual gifts. So most of the time, it's talking about what most of us would mean when we use the word spiritual gifts, which is the abilities uh, that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, gives to each person in the church. Each of us, there's a variety of gifts, and each of us have different gifts, and all of them for the, the building up of the church. But they're, they're abilities that the Spirit gives. That's the usual way this word charismata uh, is used in the New Testament. But charismata as a word does not mean spiritual gifts. Technically, the word means grace gift. See, the word charis, the first six letters up there of that word, charis is the Greek word for grace. So charismata means a grace gift or a gift in God's grace. And while it usually talks about the abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us, it doesn't always mean that. For example... In a very famous verse in the book of Romans, Paul says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That the, 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 the outcome, the result of our sin and rebellion against God is death and separation from him. But the gift of God, what God offers each of us in his amazing grace, it's forgiveness and relationship and adoption and eternal life. And that's a free gift that comes by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But the word gift is charismata. It's a grace gift. And in this verse, it doesn't mean an ability given by the Spirit. It's not, eternal life is not a, an ability. It's just a gift. And it's not given to just a few in the body of Christ, just these six here. 
It's, it's given to all people who trust in Jesus. So while this word grace gift is usually used for the abilities the Spirit gives us, it is sometimes used differently to just talk about a gift of his grace. And I would argue in 1 Corinthians 7, it's that second meaning that is being used. I don't think Paul is saying what I was taught, that there is a special spiritual gift of singleness. And if God gives you that gift, he has given you the Holy Spirit-given ability to endure and enjoy singleness for the rest of your life. I think he's saying if you're single, that's a gift of his grace, just like marriages. See, notice that in verse 7. If you've got it open there, have a look again at what he says. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What is that? What is the that talking about? If this gift is singleness, what is that? What's the other gift he's talking about? It's marriage. And what's interesting to me is as I've read commentators this week, a number of them, certainly not all, not probably even the majority, but a number of them argue the, the traditional idea that, that the gift of singleness is this ability of the Holy Spirit to enjoy and endure being single for your whole life. But every single commentator who says this says nothing about the next one. What's the gift of marriage then? Is that what the, the ability of the Holy Spirit to endure and enjoy marriage for the rest of your life? But spiritual gifts, the, the abilities, they're given to a variety of people. So is it possible to have neither of those gifts? What's your spiritual gift? Oh, mine's singleness. What's yours? Oh, mine's marriage. What's yours? Mine's teaching. Oh, gee, I, I wish I had this one of these. Because what happens if you have the gift of singleness and you want to be married? Or what happens if you've got the gift of marriage and you're single? Or what happens if you're married and don't have the gift of marriage? Man, how hard is that going to be? So I think we've completely misunderstood what Paul is saying. When Paul uses the word charismata in this chapter, he is not talking about spirit-given abilities. He's talking about a gift of God's grace. And what he's describing is your status right now. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us watching or listening to this, are either single or we're married. And Paul is saying, whichever one you're in, that is a gift of his grace to you right now. If you are single, you are single by God's grace. If you are married, you are married by God's grace. And you're to look at your marital status, whichever one it is, as a gift that he has given you in his grace. Listen to this. For now. If God right now in his grace has you as single, it does not mean that you're going to be single for the rest of your life. The vast majority of you, if you would like to be married, will probably get married. That's just statistically true. If you're right now married, that is a gift of God's grace to you. And you especially need to hear that if your marriage is hard work at the moment. Your marriage is a gift of God's grace. 
and you will not always be married. There will come a point somewhere in your married journey that one of you are going to die. And the other one will come back to this status of singleness. Or, as has happened to some of you, tragically, your spouse walked out the door and you ended up back in this status. But the God who is sovereign over our lives and who can redeem the messiness of our lives says to you, I have you in my grace. And whatever status you're in, that's a gift to you for now in this season. love the way that, that British writer Christopher a., uh, Ash explains this. I know which gift I have, he says, by a very simple test. If I'm married... I have the gift of marriage. If I am not married, I have the gift of being unmarried. My circumstances, he says, are God's gracious gift to me, and I am to learn to accept them from his hand as such. I, would add, I just want to add one little bit to what he says in that last sentence. My circumstances, either single or married, my circumstances are God's gracious gift to me right now. May not be in the future, but right now, this is God's gift to me. And I will learn to accept them right now from his hand as such. See, here's the big idea for today. Singleness is not God's plan B. It is God's plan A for this season of life. If you are single, please hear this. Let this sink deep into your soul. Your single status is not plan B. It is God's plan A. You are exactly where God wants you right now, in his grace. Your status at the moment is a gift to you. Grab it, embrace it, enjoy it as God's plan A for this season. Because it's not to say that your status won't change. Because everyone's status who's married right now is going to change. At some point, some of us will either die or be single. And many who are single right now will probably end up married. But right now, everyone is exactly where God wants us to be. And if you're single, I, I think you desperately need to hear this. You are not in plan B. This is God's plan A for your life right now in this season. One of the books that I have really enjoyed, I've recommended actually six books in your bulletin today that have been helpful. A few people have asked me about some of the books I've been quoting, so I've put the titles and authors of six books in the bulletin for you, and we'll leave them there for the next few weeks. One of them is by this guy, Marshall Segal, who says, perhaps the greatest temptation in singleness is to assume Marriage will meet all our unmet needs, solve our weaknesses, organize our lives, and unleash our gifts. That's why I, I spoke the second message on this was finding the capital O one, finding God. Because a spouse can never, ever meet all our needs. It is only God who meets the deepest needs of our soul. And if you're single, I want to plead with you, as Marshall does, don't give in to the lie that if only I was married, all my needs would be met and everything would be fine. In fact, let's look at what he says. Far from being the solution, 
Paul makes marriage out to be a kind of problematic plan B for Christian life and ministry. Now, person, I think he's gone a little too far there. If you're married, don't suddenly realize, dang, all the singles are in plan A and I'm in plan B. No, because the very point here that he's making is that whatever status we're in, that's plan A for us right now. It's a gift of God's grace, whoever we are. Singleness, then, is not God's plan B. It's God's plan A for this season of life. Why does Paul say that? This is where the rest of the chapter, he speaks to marrieds in the next few verses, and then you jump to verse 25. And in this next section, he unpacks this principle, and he's going to give us three reasons why It's good to stay single, why singleness is a great option, and why both marriage and singleness are a gift of God and God's number one A plan for each of us, whatever status we have. He's going to give us three reasons, and these are directed to those of you who are single, so listen up, we're going to run really fast. Verse 25 to 27 repeats the principle. Now about virgins, verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, which is Jesus, but I have a judgment as one who... By the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, Jesus didn't teach on singleness, but let me give you my advice as an apostle. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman, engaged? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's repeating the principle. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. Quietly, I think marriage is, uh, singleness is better. But both are good. Pursue which one the Lord leads you to pursue. He says the same, flick down in your app or flick over in your Bible, whatever. Verse 38, so then he who marries the virgin does right and he who does not marry her does better. So it's this little idea coming through. He's a single guy. He's going, singleness is great, people. It's awesome. But either way, they're both really good options. Why? Reason number one is back in verse 28. Ready? If you do not marry, you have not, sorry, if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. <laughs> the first reason is entirely practical. He says marriage brings trouble. It's what he says, isn't it? Look at it. This is the word of God. Those who marry will face many troubles in life. Do I hear an amen? No, don't, don't say amen. If you say amen, your spouse is going to be looking at you, and he's like, you know, it will be plan B for the next few days. But this is incredibly helpful. Because if you are single, I can almost guarantee, this was certainly true of me as a single bloke, you have an idealized view of marriage. And Paul wants you to wake up and smell the poop as well as smell the roses. Marriage is great. Marriage is wonderful. But marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. There are times in every single marriage that it is hard yakka. And there are tears. And there is pain. And there is agony. 
And there are times where we need to stop and apologise for being so dumb. And we need to stop and apologise for hurting each other. And there are seasons when we're close and it's intimate and it's beautiful. And there are times in every single marriage when we've drifted and we feel a distance and it is hard work. And all of us who are married know that, but if you haven't been married, you may not realize that. And Paul wants you to get this. Marriage brings trouble. One of the reasons why it is good to be single, why singleness is just as good as marriage, is because marriage, while on one hand there are, some, there are a lot of pluses to it, there are also minuses. Just practically, marriage is hard work. You know what marriage is actually really doing? It's taking one sinful guy and one sinful woman and locking them in the same room for 40 or 50 or 60 years. Good luck. Now, I'm saying that as a happily married man. Rochelle and I have a really fantastic marriage. There have been times in our married life that it's just been hard work. There have been times in our married life of great pain. And I could pull every single married couple sitting down here at the moment up on stage and every single married couple in this room would say the same thing. Unless you've been married only two weeks and then you need to listen to the rest of us. <laughs> if you're single, hear this. Because what Paul is trying to do is to take the rose-tinted spectacles off your face. Singleness is good, and marriage is good. But if you're single, don't have an idealized view of marriage. Marriage brings trouble. That's his practical reason. Next reason is in the next few verses. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they do not. Those who mourn as though they did not. Those who are happy as though they were not. Those who buy something as though it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if it's not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. What good night. What did he just say? Did he, sorry, did he say, those who have wives should live as though they do not? Paul here is using hyperbole, just as Jesus did at times. He's using exaggeration to make the point. And the point he's making is the point that is said at the very end, the last sentence. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. The second reason he gives is eternal. One of the reasons why we should understand and, and see that singleness is a viable and good option for followers of Jesus is that this present world is passing away. Paul is reminding us once again of that idea that we need to view this life in light of all of eternity. I've talked before about the analogy of this long rope that goes all the way, stretches from corner of this room to corner and just keeps on going. That's forever with God and the new heavens and the new earth. And somewhere on the rope is this tiny little blip that you can't actually even see and that's our life now. And Paul is trying to help us understand in the light of all of eternity, this life now, this tiny little blip, do you think in eternity we're going to be that concerned over whether we were single or married? We need to live far more in light of forever than get consumed and caught up with what happens in this world. doesn't mean we don't get concerned with this world. But he's trying to lift our eyes. So for those of you who are single, Paul is saying, hey, singleness is a good option. 
Number one, it spares you the troubles that come with marriage. Number two, just think in terms of eternity here about what's really important. And then the third reason comes in the next few verses. Verse 32, I'd like, to f- like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Just lost my place. Oh, there. An unmarried man, or, oh, sorry, an unmarried woman or virgin, verse 34, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. The third reason he gives is spiritual. If you are single, you are able to live an undivided devotion to God that is impossible for those who are married. And he's not saying that's a bad thing for marriage. Again, he's just stating the reality. If you are a married man or a married woman, this is what he says in the text, isn't it? Then your, your attention and focus and energy is divided on following Jesus and living for his glory and loving your spouse and running the household and caring for your home and looking after the kids and all that other stuff. And Paul will argue elsewhere that's a good thing. If you're a married person, you should not have all your devotion on the Lord because you have a responsibility to love your spouse. But what he's saying is if you're single for this season, part of God's gift to you is that you don't have a spouse to have to put all this attention on. And you can have, it's this beautiful phrase in verse 35, undivided devotion. I, I desperately wish, as a young man in my early 20s, that someone had pointed this out to me. Because I was so looking for the one. I was so scanning the horizon and the radar was going. I'm not sure that I lived as a single guy to full advantage. Because what what Paul is saying is if for whatever season you're single, and it may only be a short season, you have the distinct advantage over every married person sitting in the room where you can give way more attention to your relationship and growth with Jesus Christ. And every single married person in the room isn't able to do that. If you're a teenager or young adult and you're sitting next to your parent, just look at them and slightly laugh for a minute, would you? Because you have a massive advantage over your parent. If you're single, you've got a big advantage over your married mate sitting along the row from you. Because their attention has to be divided because they're married. Yours doesn't. And I would actually encourage you, man, this season is a gift of God to you. Don't waste it. Live it. Grasp God. Go deep with Him. Don't waste your season of singleness the way I think I may well have done in the past. That's his three reasons. 
understand singleness is a good option for followers of Jesus. It's just as good as marriage. Why? Because practically, marriage is hard work. And eternally, we've got to keep reminding all of ourselves that this life is short and eternity is forever and we should live in light of eternity. And spiritually, a season of singleness is a season to devote yourself to God. And then at the end of it, we're not going to look at it because of time, but at the end of it, he gives two examples in verses 36 to 40 about those who are engaged and then those who, who are widows, and I would also add those who are divorced because their spouse abandoned them. And basically, Paul just then applies all of this to, to those of you who are single. And basically says, my suggestion to you as a single guy, be single. But if you don't feel called to that, then by all means, go ahead and marry because both singleness and marriage are a gift from God. And that's where he goes in the passage. Hear me, singleness is not God's plan B. If you are single today, this is God's gift to you. It is his plan A for you for this season of life. I came across, uh, as I was preparing this message, what I think is the single best statement on singleness I have ever read outside of Paul's words, because his are inspired by the Holy Spirit. The single woman, I don't know who she is and I don't know her story, but the single woman in America called Paige Benton Brown wrote what I think are the most amazing words on singleness. She's writing as a single woman, and here's what she says. I am not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. Hear that. We sung earlier today a song called Sovereign. It says, whatever comes my way, God, I will trust you. And that's how the single woman responds. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me. Because this is his best for me. Again, I would add the words right now. I don't know if she's since married since she wrote that, or whether she's not. But this is true. And then she goes on to write these words. This is phenomenal. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. That is so cool. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. That is a woman who has heard the message of Scripture and embraced it with gusto. That is a woman who is choosing to believe that her God is good and loving and kind and sovereign and faithful. And he is so good that he has gifted her in this season the gift of being single. And whether or not that does change in the future doesn't matter, she says. Because God is sovereign over my life. It is cosmically impossible that there is anything better for me right now than being single. Because singleness is not plan B. Singleness is God's plan A for this season of life. Right, as we finish up, I want to say a few words practically to those of you who are single, and then I want to just very quickly ask us marrieds to do a couple of things. 
So, singles, here we go. Number one, please embrace this season as God's gift. Embrace this season. You don't know how long this will last. But live into your singleness. Enjoy the fact you're being single. Thank the Lord that while you may want to be married, those troubles aren't in your life right now. And live with gusto. Embrace life and enjoy it. Uh, My friend uh, Jeff Jones, the pastor of Chase Oaks Church in Dallas, just preached on this a number of months ago, and he quoted one of the women in his church who had said these words, sometimes as single people we treat all of our plans as provisional, and we can live in waiting mode. We can wait for things to happen rather than plan for things to happen. I had to learn to transcend that and not get stuck. That's, That's a great comment. If you're single, don't sit around and wait. Get into life. Embrace life. Do the things you're free to do now and enjoy this season that you have. One of the other authors I've recommended in the bulletin, Ben Stewart, I want to challenge some of you who are pining away. It is okay, he says, to long to be in a relationship. It's okay to long to be married. That longing is good. But if you let that desire steal all of your joy of this present single state, you're missing out on the benefits of this season of life right now. One of the heroes of my life, especially as a teenager and in my early 20s, was a a man from the States called Jim Elliott. He was one of the five missionaries who were martyred for Jesus in South America in the 50s. I read his journals when I was a teenage boy, and he became one of my heroes. And uh, when he was either courting or engaged to the woman who would be his wife, Elizabeth, for just a few short years before he died. Uh, They were separated by distance, and this is what he wrote to her in a letter. Let not our longing slay our appetite for living. If you're single, let not your longing, and your longing to be married, if that's how you feel, is a good thing too. But let not your longing slay your appetite for living. Embrace this season as God's gift. Secondly, passionately pursue God and his call with undivided devotion. That is the beauty of this season you have been gifted right now. Undivided devotion to the Lord. So make use of it. Pursue God with everything that you have. Thirdly, defy the lie about greener grass. We all have the tendency, don't we? to look over the fence at someone else. Man, their grass is so much nicer. One woman I was reading, one single woman, said, I look over the fence, and that, that, you know, and marriage just seems way greener grass, and you've got a husband to mow it, which I think is a little stereotypical. But anyway, <laughs> defy the lie about the greener grass. One British uh, single lady, Andrea Trevina, says the Bible tells us and experience shows us that marriage and singleness are both good and hard. But I find it very easy to focus only on the good bits of marriage and the bad bits of singleness. And when that happens, we need to reorient our hearts. Defy the lie if you're single. Stop assuming that life would be so much better if only you could marry. Fourthly, if you would love to be married, pursue marriage. Pursue marriage for the right reasons. I don't think, personally, that it's mutually exclusive to both embrace singleness as a gift from God for you right now and at the same time be looking. I think you can do both those things at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. 
So if it's in your heart to marry, you would love to marry. Paul says, by all means, marry. So I would say, go for it. Look, date, choose wisely. Pursue marriage, as long as it's for the right reasons. And at the same time, embrace the season. Do both of those things together with gusto. Proverbs 18 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good. Equally, he who, she who finds a husband finds what is good. So, by all means, pursue. But pursue and embrace and maintain a godly perspective and purity as you do so. We talked about purity early on. We're going to talk about purity again at the end of the series. But maintain a godly perspective on your singleness while you're here. This is plan A. This is God's grace gift to you in this season of your life. Right, very quickly as we finish. Marrieds, don't say dumb stuff. What do I mean by that? Comments like this. Why is someone as beautiful or handsome or whatever as you still single? Okay, that's dumb. One single person, when they heard that statement, said, obviously it's my personality. Why do we say that? Can we not say things that are dumb and hurtful, please, to those who are single? Are you seeing anyone yet? Maybe you'll meet someone soon. When we make comments like that as married people, do you know what we're saying? Good night, you're in plan B, aren't you? And you really need to join me in plan A. And not only are those comments unbiblical in light of what Paul has said in this passage, they are incredibly hurtful. So can we cut the comments, please? Let's not make those kind of comments to our friends and our brothers and sisters who are single. Secondly, can we be a bit more real about married life? Often our single friends have an idealised view of marriage and that's something we reinforce. Wouldn't it be nice if we were a bit more real about actually how tough marriage can be at times? Now that doesn't mean spill the beans to your single friend over coffee and tell them what a jerk your husband's been, again. But it does mean being a little bit more honest and real about the reality of marriage. Thirdly, something I feel quite convicted about, actually, can we, as married people, can we open our hearts and homes and families more to those who are single? Because it can be lonely. God's answer to loneliness for many people is marriage, but not all. But God's ultimate answer for loneliness is community. So can we, who are married, be part of showing community to those who are single? Can we make more of an effort to open our homes and open our hearts, open our tables for dinner, and invite those who are single to do and share life with us? And finally, pray. Let's pray for our single friends, but please let's stop praying that they would find someone unless they specifically ask us to join them in that prayer. And then let's pray that, but let's pray more fervently that our single friends will pursue Jesus in this season of undivided devotion to him.
singleness is not God's plan B. It's God's plan A for this season of life. Our time is gone, but I want to close with a beautiful prayer that I found in the book by Marshall Segal. I was going to invite those of you who were single to just quietly pray with your eyes open and read it on the screen and just pray quietly in your hearts along with me. And then the more I read this prayer today as I was preparing again and just going over this message, I said, well, you know what? Every single married person needs to pray this prayer too. So I'm going to invite all of us to pray with eyes open today. I'm going to read these words of this prayer to finish and I'm going to invite you to make this your prayer whether you are married or single today. You, Lord, are the only one who can ever truly make me happy. No spouse, no friend, no job, no amount of money could ever fill the hole inside of me that is made for you. You are more than enough for me. You are more than enough for me. And yet my heart is still prone to wander. Order my loves according to your surpassing worth and beauty. And guard my eyes and mind from being preoccupied with anyone or anything besides you. Lord, would you capture my heart again and secure it against all of Satan's lies. In Jesus' name, amen. It's our service, folks. Thank you for being with us. Remember that nightlife is tonight. We would love to have people there supporting Derelyn and Mel. And um, please stay for tea and coffee. If you'd like prayer for anything that we talked about, I'm going to be down the front. and Some of our other leaders will be as well. Otherwise, have a wonderful week. Thanks so much. Mr.